Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. At the theater, more than the movies come to life, movie lovers march in and skip the line with digital tickets to the latest movies on the free Fandango app. Ready to grab some snacks. Pick me! And head to the best seats in the house for a night of romance, terror, and quality family screen time. <laughs> Visit Fandango.com or download the app today for your ticket to the movies. Hello, I'm Peter King. Welcome to the MMQB podcast with Peter King where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. This week, Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback Ben Roethlisberger and Fox Sports broadcaster Joe Buck coming off one of the best World Series of all time. I asked Roethlisberger about the maturation of a quarterback on and off the field. You know, being able to have kids of my own, I think it puts you in a, a better place on and off the football field. You you understand what's important in life and it, it helps with the ups and downs and i asked buck so much attention from your new book paid to you and hair plugs was it a little bit overblown that was all said tongue-in-cheek like i i maybe somebody could be addicted to hair plugs the way they're addicted to lighting their fingers on fire but i didn't write a book on hair plugs nor yeah. am i addicted i don't freebase hair plugs in the corner of parties now my conversation with Steelers quarterback Ben Roethlisberger. Keep in mind, this conversation was recorded before Roethlisberger underwent knee surgery, and so we will not obviously talk to him about his recent knee surgery nor his recent game against the Baltimore Ravens. Mack Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now. Mack Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. Mack Weldon will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants that you will ever wear. All their products are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. They want you to be comfortable, so if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it, and they will still refund you. No questions asked. Not only does Mack Weldon's underwear, socks, and shirts look good, they perform well, too. It's good for working out, going to work, going out on dates, just everyday life. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using promo code MMQB. Back on the podcast here in Pittsburgh with Ben Roethlisberger, the quarterback of the Pittsburgh Steelers. We're here at the Steelers training facility. Been here many times over the years to see the Steelers. And the one thing that never really gets old when I come here, and I wonder how it is for you as a player, you walk in this building, this training facility, and you have to walk by the six Super Bowl trophies. And I don't know how often you do it because it's not down in the locker room. It's up here in the offices. But I walk by there and I say, man, that's got to be like kind of heavy pressure when you face something like that or you walk by something like that. What is it like for you to walk by that? Pretty cool. Yeah. Um, it, it is not every day, but it's at least once a week. You know you, you know where they are. You see them. It, it reminds you of the tradition, the history. I was blessed to be a part of two of those, 
and um, it, it really just a neat thing. I think it's, you know, the when visitors come, they always stop there. They're taking pictures. You know, when you get um, new players coming in that, that were on other teams and they see it, it, it I think it motivates them to want to get them. And it just kind of shows uh, shows off a little bit, if you will. I think the Rooney's do that to show off a little bit, too. <laughs> <laughs> when you first got drafted uh, back in 2004, the Steelers were kind of in a long drought. And people basically looked at this team and said, are, are they ever going to be able to duplicate what happened in the 70s? And for years and years and years, people talked about that and wondered about that. So I wonder from your perspective, is that something that ever wore on you, the expectations, the pressure, the only thing that's good enough here is a title, you've got to be Bradshaw, all that stuff. What was that like for a kid, for a small town kid from Ohio, and a kid who went to Miami of Ohio? Right. Yeah. You know right away. I mean, the first day you walk in, you you know the tradition because those Super Bowl trophies are there, the history of the '70s team. That team will never be duplicated in history of the NFL. I don't believe just because of what they did, the the, the dynasty. Um, you know, you talk about other teams, the Niners, the Cowboys, the Patriots, things like that. But what that team did in, in that span of the '70s with their defense and their offense and things that that they did, it just you don't try and live up to those shoes. And, and I knew right away. I, I'm Bradshaw's shoes were too big to try and fill. I mean, those, that's four Super Bowls. That's awesome. Um, I just wanted to be the best I could be, and. I was blessed to get on a team to get drafted to a team that was better than their draft position. They yeah, had a bad year, right. a great defense, you know, a great running game, and so it was. I was very fortunate they drafted that high that year. And um, you know, coming in, you just knew they they had a lot of veteran guys here that that taught you the way really quick what it was like being out to practice five minutes early, you know, being in meetings at least, or, you know, everything had to be early. You never were late. You never waited on anybody. And um, they kind of set the bar high when I got here. And those are things that I've tried to pass on to guys as well. So early on, I've always wondered this. When you got drafted, I had thought at the time that either the New York Giants or the Cleveland Browns were going to pick you. Think back to before that draft and think back to what you thought was going to happen on draft day in 2004. Well, you know, it's so long ago now, but it does seem like just the other day. It's crazy how that yeah. works. Um, you know, there, there's so much speculation when it comes to the draft. You know, agents are telling you things. Coaches are telling you things. Um, you know, and nowadays even more than back when I was getting drafted, all the quote-unquote gurus that pick and do the analyst. I mean, they're, they're probably breaking down the 2025 draft. You know, it's amazing <laughs> how they do that stuff. But, you know, you, you kind of just had to go on what your agents were, were telling you and what they had heard. And, um, you know, we, we kind of thought it was very, very outside chance, the Chargers and, all, and how they were doing, you know, because they had – they had the first of, pick, they the, and they had Eli Manning, you know, that they were going to pick. Yes. And then Eli said, I'm not going there. Right. Yeah. And, and, and so I think everyone kind of knew what was going on. Yeah. Um, we did think the Giants were an option. And I think um, Coach Hepner, who has since passed, obviously, at the time was with me, uh, the infamous water bottle throw that you see at the, at the draft table because he thought he had inside information as well. That you, that you were going to go to the Giants. The Giants right. And this is Terry Hepner, your coach at, at Miami. Correct, Coach right. Terry Hepner. And, um, you know, so then that doesn't happen. And then you think, okay, Ohio, the Browns, you know, it's that's going to happen. But you know, when they went with uh, Kellen Winslow Jr., 
then we really had no idea what was next. And I, I do remember that the, the next team that was talked about was the Buffalo Bills, who I believe had a few picks behind the Steelers. Yeah. Um, never even thought the Steelers were a, were a possibility, even though – You never worked out for the Steelers? Never. Well, I did my draft. Right. I worked out for the Browns as an individual team and then did my normal um, pro day. Right. But the crazy thing is, is the only visit I took was to Pittsburgh. Wow. And, you know, we're kind of like, okay, we'll just come in here and see what, you know, I, you know they ask you to come, you come. But um, still didn't think it was a, a possibility. I mean, they were a good team. They had Tommy, who the year before had a, had a down year, but the year before that, that's where Tommy, Tommy Maddox. Dunn. Yeah, Tommy, Tommy Dunn. Maddox, you know, yeah. that's where it came right, from and, yeah. and everything that he had. So didn't think it was really a possibility. And then the phone rang. And, you know, the phone only rings, you know, when it's picked, when it's someone telling you you're, you're up or you're up next. So it was Coach Cower and told me they were picking me. So it was um, a pleasant surprise. Yeah. You know, one of my first memories of you is after the Super Bowl, you guys win the Super Bowl. You don't play particularly well. And you are down after that game in the locker room because you feel like you let your team down and you didn't play to the level that you thought you could. And I never forget that because what it said to me was, hey, look, everybody's going to be happy when you win the Super Bowl. But at the end of the day, if you are someone who takes a lot of pride in your performance, you're not going to be very happy if you don't play very well. What do you remember about that Super Bowl in particular? Well, don't get me wrong. I was extremely excited about winning the Super Bowl. But, you know... We were a predominantly running team that year. You know, right. we ran the ball a lot. They asked me to, you know, we, we had to make some plays here and there. But, you know, we got leads and we just ran it the whole second half. That's what right. we were known for. And defense was great. But when we went into that playoffs, what people don't remember is we came out throwing the ball. We threw the ball all over the place in the playoffs and, and pretty much won a lot of the – I mean, our defense helped us win the games. But offensively, we threw the ball to win those playoff games and to get to the Super Bowl. And then to get there and, and to feel like – Man, you almost cost your team a Super Bowl. That's what was more frustrating because, as a competitor and as the, the champion, you want to to help your team win. And obviously, there were you know we made some plays, but felt like um, I didn't do what I had done up to that point and what I could have done to help the team. Now, like I said, really ecstatic we won the game. I'm not a, a stats kind of guy, but I think it was more just man, I almost blew it for the team, and and that's what hurt the most. The Super Bowl, you. You guys beat the Arizona Cardinals. The one thing about that game that really is interesting to me is that the last drive, ending with the throw to Santonio Holmes, there are going to be some plays you'll probably be remembered for in your career, but that might be number one, however much longer you play. Why were you able on that particular play to put the ball precisely where you wanted to? Well, you know, I do get asked a lot, you know, if there's one play that you remember and that, I mean, how do you not remember that one, right? As a little boy, I was in the yard being Joe Montana, throwing balls to Jerry Rice to win Super Bowls. And um, to have the opportunity to to throw a touchdown to pretty much win a Super Bowl is is what every boy, and especially me, uh, dreamt of. And so, you know, I remember that drive, uh, how the drive started, um, you know, trying to, you know, the the whole the famous story of uh, Montana in the in the huddle right and saying is that John was look John at John Candy, Candy. Right? yeah so, you know we're on the sideline and getting ready to go out and I kind of joked with those guys hey guys I don't have a, a Montana John Candy story but let's go do it. you know we kind of <laughs> laughed about it and the first play is a holding and we go the wrong direction you know so but to drive down that field and I tell this and it's as honest as I can be I don't know if I forgot or I didn't think about that a field goal tied the game 
my mindset was touchdown. And whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But um, the play right before the touchdown was actually an easier catch for him, a better play, and he dropped it. I remember. And we were all like, oh, man, I couldn't believe it. And then, um, Do you have any second thoughts about going back to him? Never, never. Faith and belief in my guys. I, I'm, I'm a, a quarterback that if a guy drops a ball, I'm going to try and get you the ball the very next play if I can for all of us. you know. But I remember thinking on the touchdown play, there were about three or four different options, and Santonio was one of the last ones, and he kind of made a, a beeline to the back corner. And I remember throwing it, and as soon as I threw it thinking, oh, man, that's not good because there was a defender that was kind of starting to get back underneath of it. And and once again, that's the the silly mindset of myself not thinking, don't make that tough throw when you've got a field goal in the books. But, um, you know, the competitor in me said, do what you got to do, and we put it there, and it just got over the guy's fingertips, and San Antonio did the rest. It's kind of mindful of the the story from the Ice Bowl where Vince Lombardi on the sidelines at the Ice Bowl said, we're going for the touchdown here, even though – you know, if they don't have that quarterback sneak, they're going to lose the game. And they could have kicked the field goal and just gone to overtime. But what was so interesting about that play is that the same kind of thought that you had, we're not backing down, we're going at the Dallas Cowboys. That plus the fact it was 34 below zero or whatever (laughs) it was. Sometimes that's the mindset you have to have, you know, good or bad, I don't know. It's the MMQB Podcast. This is Adrian Wojnarowski of The Vertical. For candid conversations with the biggest names around the NBA, be sure to check out our podcast network, which includes The Vertical Podcast with Woj, The Vertical Podcast with J.J. Redick, and The Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix, all at thevertical.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. How would you like to get three home-cooked meals for free? Well, all you have to do is remember these four letters, MMQB. Easy enough, right? Now keep listening and I'll tell you how to get those free meals. Look, we know there's nothing better than a great home-cooked meal and no one makes it easier for you to do that than Blue Apron. Their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their suppliers and only bring you the best ingredients, all right to your door. New recipes are created weekly. They're not repeated within a year. So you choose your meals from a variety of recipes, or you let Blue Apron's culinary team surprise you. Now comes that part about the three free meals I was telling you about. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com MMQB. Think about it. Three meals free just by adding MMQB. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. Once again, blueapron.com slash MMQB. Blue Apron, it's a better way to cook. Here with Ben Roethlisberger in Pittsburgh. So Ben, you've had one of the weirdest, strangest, star-crossed career It's almost been two careers in one in the NFL where you had a lot of success, but you also, early on in your career, you know, had a lot of trouble off the field. Your motorcycle thing where you get into a motorcycle accident and by reports, you very nearly could have died that day. Then you have the two sexual accusations midway through your career. 
So now, like for the last five years, you are Joe Family Guy. What about the metamorphosis in your life that has happened over, say, the last five years or so since you've been married? And what has that meant to you personally and as a football player? Well, just enjoying my family. I mean, I grew up with a very close family, uh, my parents and my sister. And, you know, being able to have kids of my own is one of the greatest things that that will ever happen to a person that has ever happened to me. Uh, It's just a an awesome thing to have your wife and kids and and family to come home to every day and I I look forward to going home to them every day and spending time and hearing about swim class and and learning about new things that you know the bible verses that my kids learn today in in Oana's or whatever it is so um, just the enjoyment um, I think it puts you in a, a better place on and off the football field you you understand what's important in life, and it helps with the ups and downs. And in your mind now, you bring your son, Ben Jr., in the locker room sometimes, and he is he's so having such a great time being around your team. I know that there are some guys, I know that Steve Young said it, it didn't happen for him uh, the way he wanted. Drew Brees says it, but they want to play long enough so that their kids – can remember having seen him, can experience exactly what they go through. So what is that like for you now to have your son? You have three children. Do you feel like you want to play long enough so that they remember what their dad actually did for a living? It doesn't bother me either way. Um, I'm going to play until I I can't, uh, until it doesn't feel right anymore. It's not fun. Uh, My body won't let me, whatever. But – you know, my kids enjoy going to the games, and they don't necessarily fully understand what's going on, but they enjoy the drum line and all the stuff that, that kind of goes with the game. So for me, um, I feel like my legacy here, they'll understand it at some point, whether it's now in three years, five years, ten years, whatever it is. They, they've been to games. They're in the, waiting for me outside the locker room after the games and get to walk out together. So to me, that's the enjoyable part of it now. I recently talked to Drew Brees for this podcast and talked to him about what happened to you a year ago in Seattle where you self-reported a whether it was a concussion or just not feeling quite right on the sideline. You came out of a game that was a close game, a one-score game, I think an eight-point game late, and I asked Brees if he would have been able to do it, and he kind of hemmed and hawed, and I don't think he really wanted to answer the question because he's very much for player safety. But he said, I don't think I could have come out of the game. And it's happened to me before, and I haven't come out of the game. It happened to him in 2004. So when you look back at that, what do you think the impact of you doing that was? I'm proud of it. I've I've been just like Drew where I haven't reported things before either. I'm Probably everybody that's ever played the game of football hasn't reported an injury. And for me, it's it wasn't about an injury. I've played through many injuries. But when you talk about your head, that's a different ball game. You can replace a lot of body parts. You can't replace a brain. you know. And um, you see the effects of it from past players, players who have taken their lives, the CTE stuff, all that stuff. And you know, I'm thinking about my family and long term. And, yeah, I love this game. I love my brothers that I play football with. And I would encourage any player that has an issue with their brain to just report it properly. I wasn't 
fabricating. I wasn't making it worse. I wasn't making it better. I was just telling them what I was experiencing. How did you feel on the field that day? Were you just foggy? Well, it was uh, it was different. I've never really felt the way before. Is I remember getting hit and didn't black out, didn't anything. I just I could see straight ahead fine, but my peripheral vision was very wavy. It was it was um, like looking through water. It was the weird. I've never experienced anything like that. And I was telling the doctors like I can see you guys just fine, holding fingers up in front of me, but everything around exactly where I'm looking is like looking through water. And so that's they instantly knew whatever it was or, or had a good idea of what it was. And um, I was just honest with, with them about what was going on. And like I said, uh, at that moment, you know, you have to think about long term as well. You know, it's it's not a it's a game. You know, we're, we're, we're blessed to play this game, but we also have life to live. We're not going to be doing this till we're 50, 60 years old. Do you ever get concerned about what you're going to be like when you're 55 or 60 years old or how you'll feel or how you how your brain is going to be? I, you know, I, I'd you'd be a lying. I think anybody would be lying if they didn't tell you they they think about it. But, um, you know, since I switched helmets probably eight, nine years ago, my dings, if you will, or concussions have been way, way down. I don't even... What, what did you... Tell me about the switch of helmets. What well, I happened? just went from an older um, version of a helmet, and I, I can't tell you the, the yeah. details. I don't know exactly Did you take your helmet from college here, and you used it? No, here? I didn't. You, you got a new helmet got here. Got a new helmet here. And then once, um, like I said, a few years in, after getting, you know, kind of... I'm not fuzzy every game, but, you know, every couple games, you're like, whoa, that was a little... Like, I hit pretty good there. They started doing some of the testing on which helmets were better, and I switched to a different helmet. And since I did that, I feel so much better and more confident in my brain and how I, how I feel. Finishing up with Ben Roethlisberger in Pittsburgh. So I'm really curious about when you look at sort of your legacy and how you have played this game. You're kind of thought of as this really big guy, but who has some athleticism. You know, I watched the game. I was at the game uh, in Philadelphia where Carson Wentz played, and I said, man, that's Ben Roethlisberger Jr. You know, even his physique, because your first year or so, you were kind of a skinny, slender guy. And that's the way Wentz looks right now. But you've really sort of added to your game in terms of being able to stay athletic while really getting bigger without it compromising your ability to stay out of the way of big hits or whatever. But is your body right now, you think, the prototype of the way quarterbacks are going to need to be for the future because of how much hitting that's going to become of them? Well, it doesn't hurt. (laughs) You know, I mean, every year that I've been here, you see bigger, faster, stronger guys coming out of college. And, um, you know, they, the, the hits are more violent. They're strong, you know, cause they're faster, they're stronger. And I think each guy, each quarterback is, is different. Their body frame is different. Whether you talked about Drew Brees, not a big guy, an, an RG three or some of these like, you know, little skinnier guys and you know, you take a, you take a pounding in this game, uh, regardless of what style you play, you're going to take a pounding because it is that kind of a game. I feel this is the body type that's right for me um, to do the things I want to do, and uh, I think it's worked for me. Do you concern yourself much with how you're viewed in the pantheon of quarterbacks? And, you know, do you think in some ways that you have been a little bit underrated over the years with your accomplishments? Well, I've always um, said that I'll probably be appreciated more when I'm done. People will probably look back and say, wow, we didn't give this guy enough credit, but um, you know, I just go out and try and play the game to the best of my abilities, and I, I know I'm not 
typically or I haven't been in the past in, in the, the top elite kind of quarterbacks. I know in the last few years they, they've started to put me in there, and it's nice, but I think wins and championships should speak for themselves. And, Ben, you uh, right now you are on the verge of being at the point in your career where you start to think about the end. Do you think about the end, and how much longer do you think you want to play? You know, uh, I, I try. I don't think about the end because I feel if you if you look towards the end, you're cheating the here and now. I'm cheating this week. I'm cheating today. If I say, "Boy, this is my last," you know, like I got one year left or I got two years left. Well, what about right here, right now? And I've, I've joked, but it's kind of serious that I'll I'll let the good Lord or Mister Rooney tell me when I'm done. <laughs> um, you know, and and I think as long as you're having you're having fun and it doesn't seem like a job. Uh, and your body's healthy enough to do it, and you're not forcing it, then then I'm going to keep doing it. Are you at the point now where you seem to be so at home in western Pennsylvania? You like the life here. You like hunting. You like hanging out with your kids. Have you grown to feel like this is really home for you? Oh, it is, 100%. Mm-hmm. We're, um, my wife's from here. My parents live here. Um, we're building a house here that will be our house for ever. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm proud to say I'm a Pittsburgher. Um, I'm proud to say my kids are from Pittsburgh and, um, this is, it fits us and fits me so well. And I hope that I fit it well. Um, you know, it is, it's, I, I love the seasons. I love, you know, yesterday I went home and mowed the grass and was picking up dog poop and doing normal, <laughs> you know, stuff that normal guys do. And my kids love it here. So, this is home for us, and, and like I said, I'm proud to be a Pittsburgher. Last one with Ben Roethlisberger here in Pittsburgh. So last year, after the game against Cincinnati in the playoffs, where you guys survived basically what was, to me, like a classic old Ravens, like 2008 Ravens game. That was about as physical a game as you can play in. You know, I heard that James Harrison stood up in the locker room after the game and said some really good things about you and said, in essence, and I'm going to paraphrase, that you better appreciate this guy. We're nothing without this guy. A, did that happen? B, how did it make you feel? Humbled, you know, because I respect him and and, and this team and this game very much. And uh, for him to kind of say that, it made me want to, like, kind of shrink back because that's, you know, I'm never one to to, to like the attention and to jump up and, and to be the center of it. And, he wouldn't let me go back. You know, he, he pulled me up there and, and said some very kind words and uh, felt very appreciated by uh, by my guys. Ben Roethlisberger, thanks for joining me on the MMQB Podcast with Peter King. Thanks for having me. It's the MMQB Podcast. You know, for the everyday fan, it can be a hassle getting a seat to a game or a concert that's in town, especially for a good price. That's why the best place to go when you need tickets is SeatGeek. It's so easy, you'd be crazy not to try it. They pull all the tickets available on other sites into one place, so you save time and never miss a deal. You can even set alerts for upcoming events, and they'll let you know if ticket prices fall. Even better, every ticket on SeatGeek is ranked based on value, so you can immediately find underpriced seats. And you can also use SeatGeek's detailed maps to see the view from your seat. I love that part. I've used this. That is vital. And best of all, SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the price. They show you the full ticket price from start to finish, 
They never try to trick you with huge fees on the checkout page. Now, pay attention to this next part. It's crucial. My listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. That's 20 bucks right in your pocket. And to get it, all you have to do is this. Download the free SeatGeek app, go to the Settings tab, and click Add a Promo Code. Then enter promo code MMQB. SeatGeek will then send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. It doesn't get any easier. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code MMQB today. Now we're joined on the MMQB podcast with Peter King by Joe Buck. Joe has a new book out, which we will talk about in a few minutes. But, Joe, as you may or may not know, I'm a ridiculous closet sicko baseball fan. Oh, I knew that. And Yeah, and so we have just finished a heck of a World Series. And, you know, just before we went on, I said I, I don't really have a great sense of perspective, having watched baseball closely since about 1965. I, so I don't have great perspective, but there's a good chance that was the best baseball game I've ever seen. Game 7 of this World Series. I thought it had it all. It had six months of hot stove managing conundrum discussion. It had everything. But so where would you, and by the way, I'm talking to Joe in New York on the eve of the Giants-Eagles game. I'm always supposed to say that because right. people want to know where we are when we're Plus, talking. that game is being billed as the greatest game to ever possibly be played tomorrow. <laughs> the Giants and the Eagles. But yeah. yeah, but we can go backward. Yes, yeah. let's go backward. So where does it rank in your annals? Well, I, I mean, b- number one by a mile. I think because of what was on the line, not just because it was game seven of a World Series, but it went ten innings. Uh, you can agree with or disagree with about 14,000 managerial moves that happened to lead up to all of it, not just that went on in Game 7, but certainly in Game 6 and maybe even before. Uh, But for a Game 7 to go 10 innings and then you have all the history of the Indians and the history of the Cubs, you know, you're sitting there kind of on the edge of your seat. I'm sure fans were watching it. Uh, with the sound on or off, but sitting on the edge of their seat. And I was as I broadcasted because some team's franchise history was going to turn on one pitch. And that's about as intense as my life can get behind a (laughs) microphone. So it lived up to the billing. Every last drop was squeezed out of it. And in the end, I would argue that the best team won. I think Cleveland was a shell of itself from the team the that kind of ran away yeah. the injuries hurt them so but that doesn't mean that the best team's going to win but they did and they did it in thrilling fashion and I was glad to be there hanging on to the caboose of it uh, while it was going down the rail I thought first of all this is not a podcast about Fox but I really feel like Fox rose to the occasion in this series not only because it was really the coming out party for Smoltz. And Smoltz is really good. Smoltz tells you what's about to happen. Right. I mean, it's so interesting. And he can also tell you what it's like to physically be sitting there on the mound going, here's what's going through my mind when I'm about to deliver a pitch. which I love that. I think Verducci is fantastic. And I don't just say that because I work, uh, you know, with him. 
I think Rosenthal is fantastic. I just think there are so many elements, and I think the pregame show in the studio, those guys, Kevin Burkhart does a great job handling all those no guys. A-Rod says a bunch of things that you really wish that – I mean, I, I find myself thinking now, I'm really hoping A-Rod doesn't even think about going back to baseball because I'd like to just listen to him. I think he could be – and I'm not saying he's going to be Barkley. I don't think he's ever going to be the irreverent type. But I think your show was really, really good. Well, I was proud that you know we didn't step all over ourselves. And I think the best thing you can say is because all of us have done it for a long time, except for John Smoltz, who was great, and I agree – we didn't feel like we had to smother it. You know, I, I think most of the time, it's like Greg Maddox when he used to pitch. His comment to John Smoltz and others was, when the situation is at its most tense, I go the most soft. Meaning everybody's expecting fastball, you're trying to throw it by somebody, you're trying to blow it by their bat, and that's when I throw my best change up because everybody's ratcheted up their energy. And I think that applies to broadcasting too. You know, you want to squeeze it and get every single bit of it out there, all the research and all that. But really all people want to do is be able to sit back and watch the game. And that's what I was proud of. We just kind of did our game. And uh, and some of the things really, Joe, that Fox – has done a few of the bells and whistles that I think are cool. You know, that was the Anthony Rizzo uh, to David Ross thing. I mean, look, I think there are times when, and I appreciate, because I know NBC does, everybody does it. They mic guys and they try to get that golden moment. How can you get any better than Anthony Rizzo telling David Ross that basically he's pooping his pants? Right. That he can't take this pressure. Right. And Ross says, well, buckle up. It's going to get worse. Yeah, I mean, I love that. Yeah, just telling him to breathe. Yeah. And I'm sure fans were probably thinking the same thing at home. I can't take this. This is too tense. But it's good to know. And it's good to see these guys as human beings and not as things running around in helmets. It's... You know, I think we all kind of suffer that in today's world with social media and perception. And so when you can make these guys appear human, which they are, believe it or not, I think it's got great benefit. Yeah. It's the MMQB Podcast. Hey, football fans. Looking to get a new suit? Indochino is one of the largest made-to-measure menswear brands out there, and they're making it easy for men to get great fitting, high-quality suits and shirts at an incredible price. Here's how it works. Visit Indochino.com or drop by one of their nine North American showrooms. You get to pick from hundreds of fabrics and patterns. Then choose your customizations from lapels to pleats to jacket linings and more. You submit your body measurements and then just kick back, relax, and get ready to step into the best, most stylish suit you've ever worn. It'll take just four weeks. And this week, my listeners can get any premium Indochino suit for just $389 at Indochino.com when entering King at checkout. That's right. All you have to do is enter K-I-N-G at the checkout. That's 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit. And shipping is free. So go to Indochino.com, promo code K-I-N-G, 
for any premium suit for just $389 and get free shipping. Now, Indochino also has amazing holiday deals right now on their shirts, pants, and other products, too. You'll never have to worry about badly fitting suits or expensive trips to the tailor again. Get ready to look like a million bucks at Indochino.com. With Joe Buck on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. So one other question about the series. So I find myself wondering a lot of times, really big baseball games, about the interaction the broadcast team has, because I know how it works in football, uh, where you get a chance to talk to coaches and and players and all that stuff. But in baseball, you're so omnipresent. It's every day. It's day after day. Even in the World Series, you're almost with them every day. So I wonder, after Joe Madden did what he did in Game 6, where he put in Aroldis Chapman two days after a 42-pitch outing, and he puts Aroldis Chapman in the game with a five-run lead. I'm watching the game, and I said, this is one of the dumbest managing moves I've ever seen in my life. They may win the game. It may not come back to haunt them. But holy cow, imagine if this hurts him in a potential game seven. He's going to end up being Bartman. But my question is, how much game to game do you get access to the people in charge that isn't just like in a press conference setting. That's the one guy that we actually do get to talk to, or the, the manager. two managers. Yeah. And I will tell you that, you know, we, we said as much on the air without going the Bartman route or being that direct with it, but I think both John and I disagreed with the usage of Chapman, especially in the seventh inning of a five-run game, you know, at some point. And, and I think really it, it went back to the pulling the starting pitcher before the starting pitcher should have been pulled. In that case, right. Arietta in Game 7, Hendricks. But it happened again almost. And, yeah, it didn't come back to bite him. And they did win that game, which is good for Joe. But I will tell you, Joe is one of the most open guys. And we went in there the next day, and I said, man, we completely disagreed. And he's like, well, here's why. And Well, why was it? Just this is the one time where I thought the game was on the line. I disagree with Because there were two runners on base, Yeah, but he's got a five-run lead. But he's got a five-run lead. He's like, this is a ballpark that these guys can make small in a hurry. This is the heart of their order. And, you know, okay, he gets his say. We have our say. But he's not paranoid. He's not upset. Francona will tell you literally everything, like everything. And you know from talking to guys in the NFL, some guys are really open. Bill Belichick will barely tell us what time they're going to kick off, let alone what they're going to do. So, you know, I would say that these two managers were very open and were not upset if we came in. You know, these guys hear everything that's said about them, and neither one of them, their mood did not change one bit when we walked in for Game 7. And so we get about 20 minutes with them before every game, and we walk out of there going, okay, here's what he's thinking. Now, I will say this, and I know this isn't all about baseball. He broke two things he told us he wouldn't do. One, he brought Lester into a dirty inning. Two, he did the same with Chapman, which he didn't want to do. And both times, run scored in those innings in game seven. So I I think he panicked, and I think he – but that's easy for him to do, and it's way easier for me to sit up there and go, he shouldn't do this. But you're down there in the dugout going, I got this thing by the throat. I'm not going to let it go. I get it. So I, I was happy for him. I love Terry. And, uh, you know, I'd tell you if they weren't cooperative, but they, those two guys could not be more so. 
with Joe Buck on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. So, Joe, we're now transitioning a little bit to, and I hate to do cliche questions, but I've never heard you talk about this. So I find all the time, if you look at Twitter during a football game, Mm-hmm. The same thing that I saw during the World Series, that no matter what you said, you were a Cubs fan. No matter what you say, tomorrow you will have the Eagles fans saying, oh, my God, this guy's in bed with McAdoo. And, you know, right. so, A, how over the course of your career has that affected you, if at all? Well, to answer that, it's affected me more than it should. And I've gone from oh, I think I'll stick my toe into the water of Twitter to a gigantic shark coming out and biting (laughs) me in half. And uh, I think it's really dangerous. You know, I think it can, I think it can really affect who you are and what you say on the air. And that's a shame. You know, if I get it, look, I'm a huge St. Louis Blues hockey fan. And at the end of the year, when the games mean the most. Now the national guys come in, and Kenny Albert, who I love and who does a great hockey game, is doing it. Not, but I still want my guys doing the game. Yeah, and it's the same thing. It, it, I think sports have become so tribal in that if if you're perceived as on the outside looking in, no matter what you say, if I compliment the Giants, that means somehow in their mind I'm denigrating the Eagles. I get it from Packer fans, you know, and it's I, I'm stunned by that one. It's like all we've said are just throw flowers at Favre and Aaron Rodgers, but people are, are convinced I, quote-unquote, hate the Packers. And it just tells you that in this day and age, it's a very sensitive world out there. And if anything is perceived as you're being critical of their favorite team or player or whatever, you know, screw that guy. I hate you. And – Man, that's a word that gets thrown around really easily, hate. And hate. it's too bad. But, you know, back at the beginning of my career, I was probably a little bit more free and easy and more myself. And I would say that my dad never dealt with that. Harry Carey never dealt with that. You know, the great broadcasters of yesteryear never dealt with social media. And if you let it get in, it's kind of like death by a thousand cuts. You need, I, I've now taken it off my phone. I've gone from looking at it either during a game or right after – if I believed or let that stuff really bother me, I'd hang myself. I'd never open my mouth. I'd never say one thing. And so you just have to kind of let it come and go, and it exists over here. I still don't think it's representative of the general population, and you just kind of laugh it off. And, you know, sometimes every once in a while, it'll, it'll there'll be some criticism on there that I'll take to heart. But most of the time, it's, why do you hate my team? And, and that's just, I don't hate any team. What I find interesting, I was talking about this with Terry McDonough, who is Will McDonough's son. He's the assistant GM of the Cardinals, and Sean McDonough's brother. So we were talking uh, this summer about it, and I said, man, your father, your father would not have liked social media. He would not have liked it at all. And he said, oh, he wouldn't have done it. He just wouldn't have done it. And I said, well, I would admire him if he wouldn't do it in this day and age. But the interesting thing is, just think about this. This would have been in, say, 1985. To get to Will McDonough, if you were angry at something he said, let's say, on NBC or in his column in the Boston Globe, you'd have to write him a letter. <laughs> or you'd have to pick up the phone on Monday and hope that maybe he'd be in his office 
Or call the switchboard of yeah, NBC. Call the, uh, oh, well, yeah. Oh, you wouldn't get him at NBC, but you might get him Monday or Tuesday at the Boston Globe. He, here was a guy who actually went and worked in the office. Right. So you could call the switchboard and get him. But what I'm saying is that if you were angry, you'd have to retain that anger and then sit there that night at 7.30 and sit down and pen a letter or type up a letter and put it in the mail to him, and maybe Will would see it, maybe he wouldn't, maybe he'd respond to it. But today, I think the vitriol comes from the fact that you can have instant access. There's no, and it, it becomes a little bit of a game, I think. You know, Who can be nastier, and then the yeah. one person tries to trump the other. I don't, I don't think it's a terrible medium. I think it's... In many cases, very informative. And, and did you know that Steve Young uses Twitter? Okay, so he never has sent a tweet, and he is anonymous on Twitter. He I, he's probably one of those little eggs, and he's never sent a tweet. And all he uses it for is to gather information. Yeah, that makes sense. It's like a me. wire service. Yeah, you know, and it's a really valuable one. Yeah. It comes right to your phone. I've, I've many times I've been going to a game in the car and gotten a piece of information that I'll use in that game on the broadcast. Yeah. But, you're right. I mean, I think on some level you're giving kind of instant access and then therefore credibility to people who don't really necessarily deserve it. And, I, and they're, they're emotional fans. And so I get killed because I'm the play-by-play guy. It's easier for Smoltz to make a comment, get in, get out. But when the Cub fans hear me yelling for a Jason Kipnis home run, they're not used to hearing that from the Cub announcers. So they don't like that. And And then it's perceived that I don't like the Cubs and vice versa. So – Baseball really makes it happen more. I think it bleeds over into the other sports, but because there are no local TV football announcers, they kind of accept it more. On baseball, man, I mean, they're listening to their guys for 160 games a year, and now we show up and we're getting excited for the other team. You're dead to them, and and I get it. So you you just put it in its category and glad people care. That's good. Uh, with Joe Buck on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. Joe, one other thing that a bunch of people have asked, and I wonder too. You knew sitting in your hotel room in Cleveland on Wednesday during the day, you knew that this had the potential to be one of the most momentous events that you would ever broadcast. And I wonder, do you find yourself sitting down at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, even semi-scripting? something about what you might say that night if the Cubs win and break the curse? First of if all. If the Indians win and break the thing? First of all, I'm usually waking up at 1 o'clock in the <laughs> afternoon. Secondly, no, I made that mistake in the McGuire home run chase, trying to script out was that what I was going to say for some you know, call that would go down in Cooperstown. And it doesn't work. You know, How am I going to script out that clunker that Michael Martinez hit to Chris Bryant where he comes in is basically sliding and throwing the throw to first base. You just, you have to trust your gut and you have to know that after four and a half hours that night and X number of hours over the course of the postseason, the right things are going to come out. But if you try to force what you thought of that morning into your call, man, I, I think you're, going down a rabbit hole and you're in trouble you know maybe it fits but it comes off most of the time corny it comes off as if you know you're you might as well I should have recorded it then at one o'clock and just hit a button and played it because it's that relevant it doesn't fit if you do it hours before you got to just go yeah Joe I want to talk a little bit about your book now 
when your book came out, it's called Lucky Bastard, My Life, My Dad, and the Things That You Can't Say on Television. Right. Yeah. Like potty mouth words. Right, and right, like right. That. So <laughs> you wrote this book, and when this book came out, everything was about the hair plug addiction, which was a very interesting thing to write about. And to talk about, and it made a really interesting story for people. I know Richard Deitch wrote about it and and talked a lot about it. But I wonder, in that sense, in that book, what did you want to do? And what do you feel is the most important thing in this book? Well, I'll tell you, uh, there are a lot of things to that question and, and to my answer. So I'll try to be as brief as I can. But that was just a snippet that Deitch did. The book's out on November 15th, um, so people haven't really read it, except for those who got advanced copies of it. And that was just like, a here's a chunk of what's to come. Now, he happened to pick a page, and obviously a topic that's the most sensational. But that was all said tongue-in-cheek. Like, I, I maybe somebody could be addicted to hair plugs the way they're addicted to lighting their fingers on fire, but it it is not a pleasant procedure. So to be, quote-unquote, addicted to hair plugs was said by me tongue-in-cheek. And, you know, then that came out. What is it, the procedure actually like? What do you have to go, are you put under? Uh, well, that's, yeah. Uh, you can do it with a local, or you can do it with a general anesthetic. I did, I'd done eight, so maybe I am addicted, but this is over a long period of time. The first six I did local, where they numb the back of your head with Novocaine or Lidocaine or whatever, they, something cane. And then they numb the front of your head, and they take a live strip of scalp out of the back of your head, take it over to a tray, and start pulling live growing. The bishop's crown will always grow. You, you've got hair growing on top of hair. You don't even have to worry about it. But the man's bishop crown, you should always be plentiful. And that's where they pull it, and they just doink, doink, doink into the front of your head 600, 700 times. Wow. And it's barbaric. Man. I mean, it's like... Nobody could come up with a torture. I mean, maybe the bamboo under the nails could be worse, but it'd be close. Uh, so that's what it is. And so I did it under the general one, the last two. The last one being where I had this operational mishap that this thing sat on my laryngeal nerve and I came out of it not able to talk. And so that was the reason why I wrote the book. That was like the entree into here are the first 47 years of my life. It is by no means... The focus is I didn't write a book on hair plugs, nor yeah. am I addicted. I don't freebase hair plugs uh, in the corner of parties. But that's kind of... Why? It sounds so much it's, fun. I mean, yeah. Who wouldn't <laughs> want to do that? Uh, let's all get together. I got some hair plugs. Let's go crazy and go to see Star Wars. Uh, no, that's that ain't happening. So, it, But it, it was. it's a book about... My dad. It's a book about my relationship with my dad. It's a book about growing up in this business, about divorce, about my kids through divorce. It's a book about who's around me. Funny stories about sports, but it's not, as I was telling you before, the wacky, zany world of sports, and here's the 07 World Series. I have no desire to read that book or write that book. So it's it's a little bit more all-encompassing than that, and this was just kind of the entree into it. But I knew that's what Deitch would take, and, and I, you know, that's fine. But that's just a sliver of the whole thing. Yeah. What happened the night your father died? Um, well, you know, he had been in intensive care for two months and then uh, in the hospital for a total of seven months. And 
the story that's in the book, which is told much better than I can on the MMQB PC, <laughs> uh, was that you know he wasn't getting better, and it was time for him to go. And I never understood that entire mentality of oh he's in a better place, the pain's over. You know, dead is dead. Right. You're gone. Yeah. You know. So I never was always like yeah okay sure they're in a better place. It still kills you that they're not around. And to a certain degree, that's true, but he, it was time for him to go. And they pulled all the tubes out of him in the morning, and he breathed on his own. Hadn't done that for months. Wow. The entire day. And I went to the baseball park. I went to Bush Stadium to do the Cardinals and Angels game. I was doing Cardinals TV at the time. They pulled the TV down by his head, and he listened. was unresponsive, but was breathing. And listened to the entire game. I did it. I had already said my goodbyes the night before. I didn't want to be around my half brothers and sisters. I didn't want to. I didn't want to be at the hospital to be part of the show. This wasn't like the young and the restless. I didn't need to see him die. I, I knew he was going to die, and I'd been there every day. And I'd said my goodbyes. But the hospital was on the way. I pulled over, went in. He'd been alive for twelve hours on his own, and I went in said what I said to him, which is in the book, and kissed his head and walked out, and he was dead by the time I got to my car. Wow. So I I do believe that he was waiting around for me to say goodbye, and I'm glad I stopped. And, you know, or maybe if I hadn't stopped, he'd be alive today. <laughs> now <laughs> that should I should never have seen him again. <laughs> I should never – he, he could still be going. But, uh, no, that – that's you know more the emotional part. So that that kind of stuff is in there, and it's not just about hair plugs. Yeah, yeah. If you could describe one or two things, either from him sitting you down and teaching you about this life, this job, or just something that you feel like you learned from him, you took from him, that is vital to what you do every day in this job. What would it be? To be a nice person. And, you know, I saw a guy who was really successful who had, you know, he loved people. And he loved being around. If a restaurant was empty and there was one person sitting at the bar, he'd go sit next to that person and get to know who they were and hear about their story and learn about their family. And then people were blown away by that. I don't really have that gene. I'd probably go in the corner and, and eat by myself. But... That's how he was. He was just a good person. And that's why a lot of the criticism that I get that I'm finding out through therapy hurts a little bit more because I'm a sensitive person and I, I want people to like me. And I think I've led my life in a way that has made him proud and my mom proud. And so it's like when you get online or whatever, hey, asshole, you're, you hate my team. It's like, well, no, I don't. And here, why would you say that? And I and and so you it's you're fighting a losing battle. I get that. But I think the main thing was I saw him live it. And when I followed him into this business, I never had to worry about the second half of the sentence when somebody started a sentence with, "Hey, I worked with your dad back in the early 90s." Or, "Hey, I worked with your dad back in the 80s." I mean, I I knew something great was coming on the second half of that sentence and 100% of the time it was like he was the nicest guy, I was a nobody and he took time to get to know me and that's how I've tried to be and I think that part of of him rubbed off on me because I saw it every day when I'd go with him to the ballpark with Joe Buck on the MMQB podcast with Peter King so Joe you just brought it up you brought up therapy so are you a therapy fan 
do you think that therapy has really helped you in your life? Uh, it start, it's made me identify some things. I hate going, but I feel great when I walk out. And I go like It's like one- exercising. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it is. Only it's, uh, it's more expensive. I do feel like I've gotten some benefit from it. And it's good to talk somebody just to get these things off your chest. You feel a little bit lighter when you walk out of there. But I only probably go once a month, maybe. Probably should go more. But, I, you know, I guarantee you my dad never went to therapy. He'd be laughing. Wherever he is right now, he's <laughs> laughing at me. Then I'm even bringing it up. But, yeah, I, I think it's a good thing. And I I think especially for men who tend to kind of – Act like, oh, what's a big deal, or I can handle it, or, you know. You just swallow everything. Yeah, and then eventually you get sick. And, and I think I think it's good to get that out and kind of clean the system a little bit. I, I think there's real value in that. It, there has been for me, and it's identified things with my dad in me. It's, it's identified things with my first wife in me, and, and, you know, it's been a good give and take. I, I think this – you better have the right therapist. I mean, it just because they have a shingle or whatever that they can hang on, that doesn't mean, you know, you could be sitting in there with a serial killer and they could tell you something that doesn't really help you or whatever. But I, I think I'm lucky to have somebody who makes me feel better every time I walk in there. All right, Joe, I'm going to ask you two football questions. Oh, God. I'm not qualified. Go ahead. I am not worthy. So I've always wondered like you know i've worked with bob costas for a long time he's an absolute lover of baseball and he likes football but he absolutely loves baseball and i mean we sit we've had long conversations about football so he's not anti-football or anything like that but i wonder if you had to choose one would you choose baseball and do you feel like you're better at baseball well, this is like Sophie's choice for me. Yeah. Um, so I would grab football and baseball by the hand, and I would just run toward the fence and see who they shoot. That's what I would do. I, I, I like both. You know, they're very different. I, I don't think I'm – I don't know that I'm better at baseball than I am at football. I think I've gotten a lot better at football. I think I work with a guy in football that I really – enjoy um and we look forward to these weekends of hanging out and talking about life and then doing the game i'm smart enough to know that when i start acting like i'm good enough to pick i should shut up and um you know baseball when you get a game seven there's nothing like it but game sevens are you know that was the 38th game seven in 112 world series and i haven't been Uh around for many of them how many have you done Game sevens. Oh, uh, that was my fifth. Fifth. And I've fifth out of 19. So they're not that frequent. Uh, The Super Bowl is great, but there's a ton of hype. And then it kind of comes on and you're on for three hours and then you're off. And you can't really get anything back that you said. And you hope to get through it clean. And you hope you don't embarrass yourself in front of 140 million people or whatever the number is. Yeah. So – I would rather have somebody choose for me. I'd rather I get fired and then have to put my resume tape in to both a football guy and a baseball guy and say, can I please have a job and see who I get it from? But I I love them both. I really do. I, I'm not ducking the question. I think it would be football's still massive. I know we're all talking about ratings and ratings hits and all that, but it reminds me of Roy Green back in the day. 
in St. Louis, you know, people, he said, people say I've lost a step. Well, I had a step to lose. And mm -hmm. it's the same thing with football ratings. Like, okay, maybe they're down a bit, but they're still friggin' incredible. So let's just be happy with what we've got. You're a St. Louisan. Will St. Louis ever have an NFL team again, do you think? No. I don't think so either. No. I think it's over. And you know what? Somehow, whenever that day was in January when they picked up and left, the sun came up and we stole all ate toasted ravioli and went down and gawked at the arch and talked about the Cardinals and Blues and soccer and the Hill District of St. Louis and life went on. And, you know, you and I talked beforehand about that whole situation and I really felt like St. Louis football fans kind of got a, a raw deal, but it's over. And um, I'd, I'd be stunned if, if the city were to be in a position to be able to fund a new stadium because it's not going to – if that ever happened, they'd have to build a new place. I just don't see that happening. And, you know, it's okay. I, I think people there are, are kind of over it. And, uh, you know, I, for me personally, I hope the Rams are great and they go to L.A. and they go 16-0 and 0 every year because going to L.A. would be fun and it would be good for the NFC and it would be good for Fox. So – Whatever. I, I don't. I th did one Rams game week two this year, and prior to that, I hadn't done one in seven years or something. So it didn't affect my business life at all. I, I was sad for the people of St. Louis, and I'm proud to be from there. But you know, it's time to move on. You had some, a few, not over the top, but you had a few words for Stan Kroenke on his way out the door. Mm -hmm. So in the city. I've read enough and talked to enough people there to know that there's no love lost and never, never will be. But now that they're gone, do you attribute the absence and the loss of the team to market factors or to the owner? I would say more owner because when the team was owned by Georgia, say what you want, uh, and they were good, they were a that was as hard a ticket as I've, I've ever had to get in St. Louis when they were rolling. Now, granted, you're talking about a short window of excellent football, and they lucked into Kurt Warner, and uh, then it all came together. But they had a they had a burst there where that place was loud. Pe people couldn't get enough. But I think the team just fell – apart and they were not competitive enough to make it compelling to get people off their couch and come down there and yeah. and i think that's an issue for even the great franchises how do we get people inside our stadium let alone ones that aren't competitive for 11 years or whatever the number was finishing up with joe buck so joe the game is wednesday the world series game is wednesday you got the giants on sunday and as i asked you to do this i was thinking to myself this guy probably wants to sleep for about four days because of the intense, anxious, long games, long days. How did you feel when you woke up on Thursday morning? I was excited to get back. I think I would feel more anxiety not being here on Sunday and sitting at home watching on direct TV all these games and not being a part of it. So – I think broadcasters by nature are ego-filled weirdo freaks that can't stand somebody else doing a game that they think they should be doing. So uh, because of that, I'm glad I'm here. And I'm, I, 
you know, as we sit here, I arrived today and I haven't seen my group and they're going to be filing in here in a minute and I can't wait to see them and can't wait to go in and do the game tomorrow and fly home and do it all again the next week. So yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit tired, but I wasn't digging a ditch for three weeks. I was just broadcasting baseball and that's what I do. And, and I, I can put everything in its own little category and move on to the next thing. And this is the next thing. Joe Buck, thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast. Peter, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Good luck with the book. Thank you. Lucky Bastard. That's the name of it, and that's exactly what I am. This is the MMQB Podcast. So, a couple of thoughts as we sit here at the NFL's midpoint. I think a lot of times when people in my business do things like all pro teams, MVPs, rookie of the year, things like that, that we're most impressed by what we just saw. And so, therefore, several people in my business, uh, Bill Barnwell, who does a fantastic job, have written midseason uh, reports, uh, and there have been others who've named Tom Brady the MVP of the first half of the season. I've got tremendous respect for these people and tremendous respect, obviously, for Tom Brady. However, I can't name Tom Brady the MVP of the first half of the season. The season is nine weeks old. He's played four games. I just don't think it's fair to the players who've played eight or nine games or seven games to this point. No matter how good Brady has been, I don't think he's the MVP when he's played in half of his team's games. So having said that, who do I think is the most valuable player the first half of the season? It's Matthew Stafford, quarterback of the Detroit Lions. Now you might say, the Lions are only 5-4. and four. Stafford doesn't have the best stats in the league. Why would you pick Stafford? And I'll tell you, there's one thing that's happened in the first half of this season that when I think about it, it blows me away. The Detroit Lions have five victories this season. In every one of those five games, they have been behind in the final 90 seconds of the fourth quarter. Think about that. It is legitimately plausible to suggest that the Detroit Lions have as much business being 0-9 as they do 5-4. But Matthew Stafford just simply has been fantastic toward the end of games and, in the case of Sunday's victory, uh, in Minnesota, the upset over the Vikings in overtime where he led a seven-minute drive at the start of overtime that ended with a touchdown. The Vikings never touched the ball again. So I would say Stafford would be number one on my list. Very close behind him would be Derek Carr, the quarterback of the Oakland Raiders, a very surprising 6-2 and two early in the season. And, you know, I think there are a lot of other people who deserve to be way up there. But number three on my list is going to be Dak Prescott, uh, the rookie quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. In fact, this is the first time in the 32 years that I've covered the NFL, that I could ever say this, that right now at the midpoint of the season, the best two rookies in the NFL are both Dallas Cowboys. Obviously, Dak Prescott, the quarterback, the 135th pick in the draft, the shocking, very good young quarterback who's got the Cowboys on a seven-game winning streak, and Ezekiel Elliott, the running back, who obviously was a high first-round pick for Dallas, who has been everything they thought he'd be and more. So those are a few of my awards thoughts entering the second half of the season. One note, 
Been a lot of discussion about TV ratings. We've talked about it a lot on this podcast. But I think one of the interesting things that we're going to see early on in the second half of the season, post-election, there's going to be a great game in the first weekend post-election, Seattle at New England. Super Bowl 49 rematch, Tom Brady, Russell Wilson, Sunday night in Foxborough. Tremendous football game. And I just think that when you look at the NFL trying to repair the slide of its ratings, this is the week it has to start after the election is over when America is looking for something else. They're looking for something very apolitical. And if it doesn't start this week, if the slide doesn't end this week, then I think the NFL is going to start thinking to itself, we've got some serious, serious problems. Thanks to my guests, Joe Buck and Ben Roethlisberger. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in the MMQB series, such as my conversations with Drew Brees, Steve Smith, and Larry Fitzgerald. You can find these on the MMQB.com or on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Listen to other podcasts in our series as well with Albert Breer, Gary Gramling, and Andy Benoit. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work, and thanks, too, to Burt Lawton, the public relations czar with the Pittsburgh Steelers, integral in helping with Ben Roethlisberger. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, SeatGeek, Mac Weldon, Blue Apron, and Indochino. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week. This has been a digital media production. Find your voice.